Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. But if you got a Bible, I'd love for you to go with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah's in the Old Testament. You can stick your finger right there in Isaiah 54, and then also go with me to Matthew 28. Uh, quickly, I just want to share two quick passages of Scripture that uh, will help to guide and shape the things that we believe God is leading us in in 2024 as a church family. Uh, Isaiah 54 is a passage of Scripture that several years ago, Corey and I were at a youth camp, and we were there, and a a young man came up, or a gentleman came up and said, hey, can I pray for you? I believe the Lord has given me a word for you and for your church. And so we received that and just kind of processed that and prayed about it, and it really resonated in our heart, uh, the things that he shared. And so many of the words that he shared connected to this passage from Isaiah 54, which was a passage I had read just before that in a Bible reading plan that I was in. And it says this in Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 2. It says, Enlarge your house and build an addition. Spread out your home and spare no expense, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. And then Matthew 28, I told you to flip over there as well. It says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These two passages really guide, again, what I believe the Lord is leading us to in 2024, and it's the idea for our church family to go deep and wide, to go deeper individually in our relationship with God and to go wider in the outreach of our ministry into this community and literally around the world. And so as we look to those things, what we're looking to is the idea that we are attempting to go deeper in a couple of specific ways. We want to go deeper in God's Word. We're reading the Bible through together as a church family. There's some Bible reading plans at the Information Center. They're available on our website. We're reading the Bible through, and we're asking hundreds of you to take this journey with us to understand God's Word and apply it into our hearts and lives. And so we want to go deeper in God's Word. We want to go deeper in worship We had a really special worship night this past Wednesday night, and we're going to have more of those throughout the year. But every Sunday when we gather, we worship, we sing praises unto God. I encourage you to ask the Lord to help you to go deeper in your expressions of worship, whatever that looks like for you. We want to go deeper in prayer. We're doing that through our 21 days of prayer and fasting right now. We gather every first Saturday of the month here in the worship center between 8 and 9 to pray for you, to pray for our community, to pray for the needs of the people that are in the room. And so we just, we want to go deeper in prayer this year. We want to go deeper in generosity, asking God to help us to be a conduit of his grace as we give more of our time, talent, and treasure to kingdom work so that we would have an eternal return on the investment of the things that we invest into the kingdom of God. And we want to go deeper in community and relationship and fellowship with one another. We, we don't want to just gather together and then scatter and go back to our homes and come back together every seven days. We want to do life together in community with one another. But we also want to go wider. We want to go wider in our service to the local community where God has planted us. Yesterday, you're going to hear more about it at the end of our service today, but yesterday we sent a team of people uh, to Goshen Valley Boys Ranch, and we served them as our our first local serve day opportunity. We'll do those throughout the year, but we want to go wider in reaching and meeting the needs of our community. We want to go wider in our evangelistic efforts to the lost, We believe that there are people in our community who are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we want to help point them to the life-giving, saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we want to go wider in our online reach, whether that's our streaming opportunity, our campus opportunity, 
or just our social media presence. We just passed over 25,000 streams on YouTube, and we just passed over 100,000 listens of our audio podcast. We believe the Lord is continuing to connect us to people beyond the walls of our church, and we want to continue to see that increase because some of you, your story is that you came here because you checked us out first online, or somebody shared a service with you, or a post with you, and you were able to see that and to come and to be a part of what God is doing here, and so we want to continue to go wider in that regard. Perhaps the best passage of scripture that connects these two concepts together is found in Acts chapter two. The beginning of the chapter there after the day of Pentecost, it says this, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing in meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great, uh, with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. A prayer of mine is that we would see at least 365 people saved this coming year as each day someone is saved through the ministry outreaches of Generations Church as we point them to Jesus Christ. I love last week when Dr. Justin talked about out of Psalm 1 there in verse 3 where his hope for us is that we would be like a tree. I don't know if that's an aspiration of yours, but that we would be like a tree planted by the streams of God and that the roots would go deep and the streams of God would just fill our heart and rejuvenate our heart and our soul through Christ Jesus. And that is my prayer for you this year that your roots would go deep and that God's work and the streams of God's grace would flow deep into your heart and into your life. And that as God does that deepening work in each of us, that we would also spread out and go wider into the community, the surrounding area, and literally around the world with the grace and mercy of God. And so what we're going to do is start this year as we have. We're already one week in with our 21 days of prayer and fasting to begin this journey of reading God's word together, spending time in prayer, worship, and fellowship together And I invite you to be a part of that. We want to go deep and wide together this year. All right? Everybody good? All right, so here's what I want you to do. This is kind of cheesy, but we've done it twice already, so we're just going to stick with it. I want you to act like you're buckling a seatbelt right now. Just buckle up. Here we go. Whatever that is. I mean, it's the, the, I don't know, Six Flags. You're pulling it over your shoulders. I'm not really sure what car you're driving. But buckle up, because we're going to cover a lot of ground here for a couple of minutes as we jump into week two of the book. That was just kind of the introduction But I want us to look to the context and the concepts that we were planning to share today out of this series, the book, as we look to God's word. And so what I want you to know is that we have a very high view of scripture here. We have a very high view of scripture. We believe it to be the word of God. It's the most printed book in history. And there's a lot of things that come and go, but the Bible is timeless. It lasts forever. Its power is not diminished. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Everybody say forever. Forever. It lasts forever. It stands forever. Its power is not diminished. No matter what the cultural things that are going on that come and go, all the trends and all the fads and all the content, the word of God lasts forever. It stands forever. We were working on a school project the other day, and we found a statistic that said that information is doubling every 12 hours now. Information is doubling every 12 hours. There's a lot of information at your fingertips, but the timeless forever truth of God's word will never lead you astray. And so we need to focus on it and point our hearts and our attention to it. 
So I'm gonna ask you some questions today and then we'll answer those questions together. So here's the first question. Why should you read the Bible? Why should you read the Bible? Now, there's probably a lot of reasons that your mind naturally goes to quickly, but one of the first things that I think we could all agree on is that we read the Bible because it helps us in our relationship with God. Now, what you need to know about me and about us as I read the Bible, I don't believe that we are physical beings just having a spiritual experience right now. I believe we are spirit beings, and we are living in a physical experience. I believe that God created us as spirit beings, and there's, there's flesh and bone, but the book of James tells us that he jealously desires the spirit he placed on the inside of you. Like, there is a spiritual connection that God desires with each of us. And so if we're spiritual beings and we're in pursuit of a relationship with God, then reading the Bible helps us in that relationship with him. In fact, Psalm 119, 105 says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So I did this a couple weeks ago, but it's almost like if I'm trying to figure out how to live, how to step, where to go, that God's word actually points me in the right direction. It tells me where to step my feet, what steps to take in my life. And if you're trying to determine what it is that you're supposed to do, go to God's word and look for that kind of guidance. Later in Psalm 119 verse 9, it says this, how can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word, by hiding God's word in your heart. If you're trying to figure out how to live and how to stay pure in the midst of a world that is constantly bombarding us with thoughts and ideas and compromise, then we hide God's word in our heart, we obey God's word, and when we do, we seek after and chase after the purity that comes from a growing relationship with God. But maybe that sounds like what you would expect a pastor to say today about why you should read the Bible. So let's go outside of the Bible for a moment and look at some more kind of psychological, sociological thoughts of what Bible reading does to impact our hearts and lives. So in 2021, there was a study done by LifeWay Research. They surveyed 40,000 people from the ages of 18 to 80. Most all of us would be in that demographic. 40,000 people surveyed, and here's what they found. There was very little difference between someone who didn't read the Bible and someone who only read the Bible one time per week. Like their life, their joy, their fulfillment, their satisfaction, the way that they live, their behavior, it was very little impact if they did not read the Bible versus if they read it one time a week. There was also a little bit of an uptick, but not much of a difference if they only read it twice a week. Now, once they started to read it three times a week, it definitely changed the the way that they lived and the behavior of their life and their joy and their hope and, and all of those things. But the secret sauce was if they read it four times a week. The survey showed that if you read the Bible four times a week, there is a gigantic change in the way that you live. And some of you already have tuned me out. You're like, four times a week. That's a lot. I can't do that. But here's what they found. If you read the Bible four times per week, feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger issues drops 32%. Bitterness in relationships drop 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. And sharing your faith jumps 200%. There is a gigantic change in the way that you live, the things and how you face the things that you are facing when you read the Bible four times a week. Now, if you were to tell me that there was great benefit in me working out four times a week, I would probably argue with you, right? I'd be like, "Eh, I've tried it, it doesn't work. But if you told me there was benefit on the end of that, I would probably be willing to give it a try. I would probably be willing to to work through that and to try, but I'm telling you, like, if you put God's word into the rhythms of your life on a regular basis, it changes the way that you live. 
But perhaps the greatest benefit isn't something psychological. It isn't something sociological. The greatest benefit of reading God's word, in my opinion, is getting to know the author. This last week during our 21 days of prayer, I was sitting right over here thinking about our time together, and I was reading through our Bible reading plan during one of the the personal moments. And And I wrote this down for me and for you as it relates to reading the Bible. Don't read it like a task. Read it like a love letter. Read it like a will that shares your inheritance. Read it like a textbook that teaches you lessons. Read it like a magazine with how-to guides. Read it like a dictionary that brings definition to things. Read it like an encyclopedia that gives you context to subject matters. Read it like a map to discover buried treasure. Read it like a script to the greatest movie in history. Read it like a family tree project in school. And read it like a full-access, behind-the-scenes autobiography of the lover of your soul. I love God's Word. It's this beautiful, living, breathing, challenging, comforting thing that has been given to us by our loving Heavenly Father. And I've told you over and over and over again that I don't believe it's my job to convince you of something. Because if I try to convince you of something, there will come a day when someone way more charismatic than me can unconvince you of whatever I've tried to convince you of. But what I want you to know today is that this beautiful, life-giving, unchanging letter from the Father can change your life. It will change your heart. And so you should read the Bible. So here's another question. If we should read it, let's try to understand it. Now, the next few minutes are going to be like a little more academic You're going to get continuing education credit for this, okay? You've already buckled up. You can't go anywhere. You're locked into your seat. So how was the Bible constructed? How was the Bible constructed? Now, there's no way, in both of our services so far, people have taken pictures of the screens. You're welcome to do that if you see the TVs. I can't move all this stuff because I couldn't really get it back where it needs to go quick enough. We'll post all this online this afternoon. But if the Bible was constructed over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors and constructed into 66 different books. So it is one book, but it's actually 66 books, and those books are constructed in a really unique and dynamic way, but it was written over a long period of time by 40 different people through the instruction and inspiration of God. And so we're going to put this graph up on the screen, and, and again, you can, you can take notes or, or, or take a picture if you want to, but this is how the, the, the Bible is laid out. So look at this up on the screen. Over on the left is the Old Testament. Over on the right is the New Testament. So the Old Testament is 39 books, and these books are broken down by sections. The, the first five are the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law. And then you go into the 12 history books, which lay out the history of God's people, the children of Israel, as they're walking through and doing life. And you can see those books that are listed there. Then you have the poetry books or the wisdom literatures. You have Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Then you have five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets are not less significant than the major prophets. They're just shorter books. They're minor because they're smaller. And so the major prophets, they were speaking in the mouthpiece of God for a longer period of time, or they spoke more on behalf of God to his people. So there's a larger collection of their story. And so you have the five major prophets and the 12 minor prophets, and that is the Old Testament. Those are the books that make up the Old Testament of the Bible that you and I have. 
So we're going to come back to this in a minute because what I want you to see is that the, the order of the books as listed in your Bible is not necessarily the order of the events that took place in the history of the Bible. So we're reading it chronologically this year. So let's look at the Old Testament chronologically. The middle green portion here is the timeline. So it starts in Genesis and it works all the way through the middle here to the book of Nehemiah. These are the events of scripture in order. And these other books above and below are when they were added to the story, when, when they told the story that were taking place. So you have the, the story of the prophets overlaid to the time that they were speaking to the events of God's people. You have these other narratives, the story of Ruth, where Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon, Lamentations is happening, and the story of Esther that's taking place here during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so when you're reading the story and you read the story of Nehemiah, you also could flip to and see what God is saying to his people through Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Does that make sense? And so this is why we're reading it chronologically, because we want to see these things in the real time, in the events that it takes place. So as we read our passages each day, you might see something happening there in Genesis, and then we read a passage from Job. Or when we get a little later in the year, you might read from 1st or 2nd Samuel and then see a very similar passage that's taking place in 1st Chronicles so that you can see the different perspectives of the events that are taking place in the history of Israel. So now let's go back to that first chart. This is the Old Testament in chronological order. Look at the New Testament. You've got the history and life of Jesus. This is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have the history of the church, which is the book of Acts. I call it the linchpin. It's the swinging fence. It connects Jesus and the apostles to the early first century church and the establishment of the church. Then you have the letters of, church, of Paul to the churches, and then you have Paul's letters to individuals, and then you have letters by others in the New Testament. And so you can see how these lay out. So if you're flipping through your Bible or you're scrolling through your Bible app, you would see these various things, and now you understand why they fit where they fit because they're grouped together in ways that we can understand what's happening. But look at this in chronological order of the New Testament. Are you still with me? Everybody's with me? Okay, look at this chronologically for the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you move into the history of the church, which is the book of Acts. Here's the chapters of those events. And now you see Paul's ministry begin, and you see the letters or the missionary journeys, the things that he's written, and then the other things that have been sent in the time period that they're being sent to those early churches or those early faith fathers and sisters, fathers and mothers. So you can see these things taking place in the events that are happening when those things are happening in history. You're good? You're with me? So when we're reading the Bible this year chronologically, we're reading an Old Testament passage chronologically and a New Testament passage chronologically, and we chose that. I chose that because I didn't want you to have to wait till September to get to the New Testament. And so I wanted us to be able to jump in. So yesterday and the day before, you were like in Genesis 23 and you were in John 4. And so I wanted you to see some of those pieces as they kind of fit together. But we want to go deeper in God's word this year because it matters how it's constructed. It matters what God is trying to communicate to us to help us understand his character and his nature. So it's constructed this way. But here's what I want to make sure we all understand. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, there is one theme. There is one topic it's called the meta-narrative of Scripture. It is this overarching narrative from beginning to end. There's a lot of stories. There's a lot of truths you can pull out. There's a lot of great things. 
But the meta-narrative of Scripture from beginning to end is the redemption and reconciliation of man back to God. And so in every story, if you're looking for it, you can find that theme. In every story, there is some aspect of God's grace and his mercy and his love extended to his people. And then you see the story, especially in Judges and in First and Second Kings, where God's people did what was right in their own eyes. They turned away from God. They did whatever they wanted to do. And God has to judge them or punish them, which is a foreshadowing of what's to come. But God is gracious and he provides a way for them to turn back around. And then there's this turning and then this turning and then this turning. But God is continually gracious, continually gracious, because the meta-narrative, the themes and topics of Scripture all come back to the redemption and reconciliation of man back to God. It matters how it's constructed. It matters how it's constructed. So you've got all these books that we talked about. There's some great ones. I love reading a lot of them. Some of them are difficult to read, but I love reading God's Word. So here's another question. Why some books and not others. Like there's a lot of other religious teachings and religious writings and old scrolls. And so why these books and not other books? Now, before we jump into that, we're about to, I want you to look at this passage of scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Everybody say all scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. We believe that and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So you had all of these various texts, these religious writings, oral traditions that had been handed in, handed down. And so starting in about the fourth century, they began to collect these things, and this was the the canonization of Scripture, the collecting of and and applying in order these, these Scriptures. And so there was a process that they took to do this. Now, it is important because of what we just read to recognize that this was not a process where man gave Scripture authority. It was the process of man recognizing the authority that God had given to Scripture. That's important. Man wasn't saying, oh, this is a credible Scripture, and so we give it authority, and now it's in the Bible. It was man recognizing the authority of Scripture that God has given to that text. And so what we did, that process of humanity, was to take those texts and to recognize, did they reflect the character and nature of God? Was there an obvious and credible author or a corroborating evidence, enough corroborating evidence to recognize that that author spoke to the same character and nature of God of these other texts? And then it pointed to the life and ministry of Jesus. And then what did Jesus do with the passages that came before him? In the ministry of Jesus, he quoted 12 Old Testament books. Often it was Isaiah and the Psalms, but he quoted 12 Old Testament text. In, in fact, 10% of what Jesus said, 10% of his words were either direct quotes or references to Old Testament texts. And so what they did is they took the words of Jesus and they looked back to those texts and they said, okay, well, there's credibility because Jesus himself, the Messiah, the son of God, he quoted those texts. And then those texts are corroborated in other things. And we see the law of Moses. And so you see the collection of texts come together with authority because they're God-breathed and inspired. And so there are other texts from this time period that are insightful, they give great context, but either they do not have credibility for a number of reasons, or they contradict something else in God's word. And here's what you need to know. God will never contradict himself. There is no place in the Bible where God contradicts something he has previously said. 
There are parts of Scripture that are difficult for us to understand. We have to wrestle with them for a long time. We're looking through a glass dimly as we understand what God may be speaking to us and and helping us to understand. But there's nowhere in Scripture that God contradicts himself. There's also no error in the text, in the original text, that changes theology. And so it's important for us to recognize the credibility of Scripture as it was constructed and as God would give it to us to be profitable, to be useful for the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and the training in righteousness. It's important for us to hold that kind of view of Scripture. And so I know there there might be another question that comes up, and I get this question a pretty good bit, but what do we do with the Old Testament? The Old Testament can be difficult to read, right? I mean, it can be difficult. That's okay to admit that today. If Jesus is the Son of God and he came and he was on the earth, what do we do with the Old Testament? Well, I just told you that Jesus held a high value of the Old Testament. He quoted it himself. And so I think it's important for us to hold that similar kind of value. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. It says, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures, all of the scripture that was available to him at that time, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He was saying to them, the whole Old Testament teaches you about me. So we hold that same view of the Old Testament. We recognize that while some of it is difficult to understand and we wrestle with it and we try to understand it, Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to throw it out. I actually came to to allow us to see something larger in the law. The book of Romans tells us that without the law, without the passages in the Old Testament that might be difficult to understand, we wouldn't feel the weight of sin and our need for grace and a savior. Like there's something about that Old Testament text that we recognize, man, it feels weighty. It's not because you can't keep all 737 laws in the Old Testament, like that would be impossible too, I can't either. But it's so that you and I would recognize that it's impossible apart from God to achieve righteousness. No matter how good you are, no matter how uh, moral you are, no matter how much you worship and give and serve, you and I would never be able to stand before a holy God and declare our own righteousness through our works. And the weight of the law, the weight of the law, so much about it in the Old Testament, and even Jesus' confrontation of religious people in the New Testament, points to us that we need grace, we need mercy, we need love, we need forgiveness. And so we hold a high regard for the Old Testament, even those places that are difficult. And I recognize when you read it, sometimes you go, well, why do I keep this law of the Old Testament, not this? Why why do we prioritize the Ten Commandments and, and not these other things? Well, if you broke it down, there's primarily three types of laws, three types of things that are outlined in the Old Testament, other than some of the history and wisdom and poetry. You have ceremonial laws, you have civil laws, and you have moral laws. Those ceremonial things would be the way that you conduct yourself at feasts and festivals and how you interact in these public arenas and public settings and approach the government officials. And the the civil laws or the civic laws would be the way that you interact with the people that are outside of God's people, the way that they interacted with the pagan people that they lived among. And that was important for them too. God was establishing them and setting them apart. But the moral laws were those things that then also reflected the character and nature of God. And those moral laws, including the Ten Commandments, are often the ones that we focus on. But what I would say to you today is what Jesus told us when he came is like, listen, I am the fulfillment of the law. And so, yes, it's about don't kill and don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't put any other gods before. It is. 
but it's because those embody who Christ is. Those embody his character and his nature. And so we look to all of scripture and we say, God, what is it that you are trying to shape and form in me? And God, as you do that work in me, would you help me to see scripture as a piece of the way that you are refining me, rebuking me, challenging me, teaching me, and training me up in righteousness? I love the Bible. I love God's word because of what it does. Every time I read it, it seems like I find something new. And when my heart's in the right place and my mind's in the right place as I'm reading it, I can ask God, God, how does this reading reflect you? What can I learn from it? How can I apply it? I think of the Bible so often like a gift. We just open gifts at Christmas. And we open gifts for birthdays. And I think over the years about all those times that our kids would take our money to go to school and buy us a gift that we would open. But they were so excited when we would open those gifts. We would open a, a, a box and we would find a pen that said, Dad. They were so excited. They would get us a coffee mug that wouldn't even keep the coffee hot. World's greatest dad. I mean, just, they were so excited for us to open these gifts. And I think about opening gifts like that and just the recognition that sometimes that's the way I approach the Bible. Sometimes I'm, I'm going to the Bible and I'm trying to unpack it and I'm trying to find something in it and I want it to have great value to me. I want it to help me in whatever I'm walking through. It's like joy and hope that I need today. And I just need some comfort. And so I'm like, God, would your word just help me? And I need some wisdom and some truth and I need some, you know, some light to guide my footsteps. And so I'm opening the Bible and I'm, I'm hoping that as soon as I open it, that's where I'm gonna find exactly, well, I was hoping I'd find exactly what I needed, but I didn't. And, and, and so I get frustrated and maybe I put the Bible down for a couple of days or a couple of weeks and I'm just, I'm not really willing to read it again. I mean, one time was enough, surely, Two times was enough, surely, but I just can't find the truth that I'm looking for. But then one day I need something from God. And so I come back to the Bible and I just, I start opening it up and I'm like, God, I just, I just need something from you today. I'm looking for a gift. I'm just looking for something. I need some joy and some hope and some peace and some comfort. And man, I just need some truth and some wisdom from your word. And so God, would you give me exactly what I'm looking for as I open up your word and what I, this is is not what I was looking for, God, I, I, I thought it was going to be different than this. Like, I thought it would be easier to understand and apply. And Sometimes we get frustrated and we put it away and we don't want to dig anymore and we don't want to look anymore and we don't want to unwrap it anymore and we don't want to apply it anymore. But I promise you, if you just keep searching and you keep looking and you come back to it time after time after time and You just recognize that sometimes it's not just what's in the gift, it's also who is giving you the gift. Those kids were so excited about that pen. They were so excited about that coffee mug that when you keep opening it up and unwrapping it, you find a treasure. You just find a treasure that you can take and apply to your life. It's valuable. It means something. And you go, God, I I thought it was gonna be one thing, but it actually ended up being something else. God, I, I was really hoping it would be on Thursday, but it took till Saturday to get. I, I was hoping I would have learned these lessons when I was 20, but now I'm 40 and I don't. But if you just view scripture as a gift, you view it as a gift. 
then you can live out one of my favorite passages from the gospel in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, that says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought the whole field. There's treasure in God's word. The kingdom of heaven can be found here. The grace of God can be found here. The love and mercy of God is found here. But you just got to view it as a gift. If you view it as a chore, if you view it as a task to mark off of your to-do list, it's probably going to feel that way most of the time. But if you view this as this beautiful gift from a loving heavenly father, and there's treasure buried here, there's treasure buried here. And some days you're going to finish reading because you're out of time and you say, God, I'm going to leave this right here, but I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm going to come back tonight. I want to see how the story ends. God, I want to find out what it is you're speaking to me, what you're saying to me. God, I just, would you, would you plant it deep in my heart? I'm buying the whole field, God. I want to find the treasure that's buried here. God, help me to unwrap the gift of your word in my life. I'm going to ask you just to bow your head. Close your eyes just for a moment. Nobody's looking around. If you would say, Jeremy, for me today, I know that I am a sinner in need of a savior. And I'm asking God today to forgive my sins and to be the Lord of my life, to take control, to lead and guide and direct me. If that's you with nobody looking around, would you just lift your hand right where you are? I wanna pray for you. Thank you so much. Several hands today. Thank you so much. Several hands today. Anybody else? Anybody else? Thank you so much. And now if you would say, Jeremy, for me, I just, I want a passion for God's word. I want to read the word of God. I want to hunger and thirst for it like never before. I want 2024 to be the best year of my life because it's the year that I gave my all to God and I poured myself into his word and allowed it to change me. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? So many of us today. God, I thank you for every person that's here. I thank you for all you've done across this day. I thank you for the blessing of this day. Thank you for what you've done and what you're doing in our midst. God, now I pray for every hand that was lifted in this service to ask you to be the Lord and Savior of their life, the forgiver of their sins. God, would you do that work? And if that's you right now, I just ask you to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ can be your Lord. He'll do it. He's already done that work. Just acknowledge that before God right now. It's your prayer. It's your confession. Allow God to change your heart and life. God, we thank you for that. We celebrate with heaven. And God, now I pray for every person that lifted their hands to say, I just want to hunger for God's word. I want to read it. I want to consume it. I want it to read me. God, would you help your word to do a transformational work in our hearts and lives? Let this be the best year of our life because it's the year where we go all in in your word. And in your word, we find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, the character and nature of God, the redemption and reconciliation of man back to God, the story of your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.